Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you're listening to Percolating on Faith. But not just Percolating on Faith, you're listening to a small subset we're doing from Percolating on Faith, where we talk all about mystics. And if you don't know what a mystic is, you need to hop back a couple episodes in Percolating on Faith and learn from Tony and Charmaine about what a mystic is. Today, we're going to be talking to a dear and wonderful friend of mine, Lori Gordon. Hi, Lori. Hi, Carla. Good to see you again. It's so good to be with you again. Uh, Lori and I are old friends back when we both used to live in California, and we were Cali girls, right, Lori? Yeah. To- we yeah. were totally Cali born girls. And raised. Born and raised. Born and raised in California. And she is going to be talking about Francis, um, Francis of Assisi. And I, I'm really excited about learning more about him. Um, but before we jump into that, Lori, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I am California born and bred. Um, I live in Bend, Oregon now. I have been doing spiritual formation work pretty much through my whole life, um, my whole church life. At the same time, I was a biologist that worked on the Human Genome Project. I'm retired now. And um, today, and I think this will come through in the podcast, I am feeling called to bring all of that work in spiritual formation and contemplative practice and awareness of the presence of God to the um, place of keeping our hearts open in these really difficult times with climate change and other structural and systemic um, places of oppression and violence. There are so many things I appreciate about you, Lori, and one of them is that you worked on the Human Genome Project in Livermore, California. A, that is very, very cool. Obviously, you're a brilliant scientist, but you also have this deep, deep spirituality that has always blown my mind and that you can hold both the science and the spiritual at the same time and not only hold them at the same time, but bring them together in such beautiful ways. I have always just been fascinated by, well, let me just say this. When you talk, I listen, Lori. When you talk, I listen for sure. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm not really that kind. It's very true. It's very true. So, (laughs) Lori, before we jump into Francis, can you tell me what you see a mystic is? What is a mystic to you? Well, I have a couple of the standard definitions of mystic, and then um, I I will say within that what it really means to me. So Bernard McGinn, who's like the father of, uh, Christian mysticism says that um, the mystical element in Christianity is that part of our belief and practice that concerns preparation for, in other words, contemplative practice and that kind of thing. The consciousness of that awakening, opening awareness and the response to what the mystics understood as direct, immediate and transformative encounter with the presence of God. And so this category of the presence of God is was fundamental to my own beginnings here. But I want to say that when I say the presence of God, that means also holding the absence of God as part of the larger understanding of the truth of the holy. To look at the world and have this sense that when the, there's this mystery 
flowing in and through and around and holding and bigger than, more than, but intimate with us, that awareness is what it is for me to be a mystic. But the mystics recognize that God's not a thing like any other thing. And so sometimes we experience the presence of God as um, this absence, uh, that ability to hold the tension of opposites, to speak in non-dual language, because one recognizes it's not either or, but both and. God is both transcendent and God is imminent, held together as one um, paradox is part of, is one of the main hallmarks for me. Um, yeah, so presence and absence, transcendence and eminence, but more than anything, it begins with a deep longing for the mystery of God and the recognition that God can't be named, can't be spoken truly about, but any encounter we have transforms us and changes us, and the hallmark of a mystic is one whose union with the divine ends up in compassionate action in the world. So so sometimes we say, what is a mystic? And I think you have to kind of start with what is a mystic not? It's not about esoteric experience. It's not about otherworldly concerns. It's not about Gnosticism or special, special knowing. It's about unknowing. and But being present in this world, in this embodied, enfleshed, um, maybe shorthand, just recognizing the extraordinary and the ordinary and how completely interdependent we all are. I mean, hearing you talk about that, it, it makes me think that I may have had like moments, like teeny tiny moments of that. <laughs> and yes. it feels, and, and like, I feel like a mystic. I've never been able to expand that out to like a day or even 30 minutes or an hour or anything like that. I feel like a mystic has to work super hard in order to expand those teeny tiny moments that I've had where I can recognize God in a new and different way. But man, it just sounds really hard. Well, so I just would like to really reflect back to you, like hold up like a mirror that says you are a mystic. Those teeny tiny moments, these are fleeting transient things. They're not something to be grasped or to be held on to. And as we'll see with Francis, it's an ongoing lifelong process of transformation. And it, you know, occasionally there will be either a breakthrough moment or a breakdown moment where the illusion that veiled this reality um, get pierced. There might be a moment, but the moment is only in service of a very long process of integration and surrender of the ego. Because the illusions in which we're mired that keep us from seeing the brilliance of the holy, the divine mystery that we can't name, has a lot to do with, in modern language, the entanglements we all have with our own shadows uh, and our egos and each other's, and then the collective shadow when we just can't see anything because there's all this stuff we're unwilling to look at. So it is very hard work, but you are a mystic. And we are all mystics. So we have this idea that's one of those where mystics are not. We hold up these guys who and women and men who have had an impact in a way that people have noticed. Many of them have written. But there are 
many, many more who are not mystical teachers, but who are mystics and experience that extraordinary moment here and there, just being grateful, waking up one morning and seeing the sun come up. That's that's the whole thing right there. So those little moments embody the whole. You catch those glimpses. So. So, yes, it's hard, but. Also, you are a mystic, and anybody who's listening to this and drawn to this exploration has had those moments that cause them to say, I want to, I just want to know a little more. I'm so glad you said that, because if you didn't, I was. So, listeners, I hope you heard Lori very clearly. She said um, that you don't have to write books and have these huge experiences with God in order to be a mystic. Um, pretty much, would you say almost everyone's a mystic, maybe? Uh, or if well, you're having experiences with God? Well, what I would say is that Carl Rahner, um, let's see if I can find that quote, um, said, he said something to the effect that, um, we will all be mystics or we won't be anything. Because a mystic is one who experiences the reality of God and at the same time is not trapped by a certain rigid limitation around who God is. And so for um, all of us to move into the future with open hearts, you know, that letting the spirit flow, those are the moments we touch the mystery that's God and we stop limiting God. I think it's maybe it's as much that as it's those moments when we don't, limit God to our own ideas and perceptions of who God is. And it's Absolutely. just critical. So yeah, every, everyone, everyone has the potential and um, everyone's journey looks different. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that very much. So you've mentioned him twice now. I think we should just jump into him. Um, where do you want to start with Francis? Do you want to start at the beginning or where? Yeah, well, why don't I give you a little bit about his life? Um, I, I actually, I think what I do want to say is why I chose Francis as a mystic to, um, to talk about today. I just feel that his, for one thing, he's one of the most well known and beloved of the saints, particularly because of his love of nature. I was actually going to ask you the question, what do you know about Francis and, and, and where does, are you drawn? But there's so much more about the way he understood what it is to be a peacemaker and to find a lifestyle that allowed him to be a peacemaker and to promote nonviolence that he just seems very relevant for our world today because he had this extraordinary ability to see others not as enemies but as friends, more than friends, as kin. That his ability to see all of creation interwoven with kinship, with family belonging, um, is beautiful, but it's also a difficult, um, choices involved. So I, I will think, I think I will start with just talking about that way in which his encounters were transformative, but um, I wanted to begin there, so. I'm so glad you did. Thank you for doing that. Okay. So, uh, St. 
he, St. Francis was not a saint when he was born. He was born as a very human person. Um, he was christened as Giovanni di, di Bernardone. His father was a cloth merchant. This was a time in Europe when the feudal system was crumbling. Um, the, a merchant class was arising. The interchange of money was changing the whole face of, uh, of Europe. Um, the, the uh, church itself um, was being inundated with corruption. Clerics keeping concubines and mistresses, taking money for alms. Um, the Crusades were in full swing. So he was born into a very troubled time, transition, transitional time in human, human history. So his father was a, was a cloth merchant, traveled a lot in France. His mother is believed to have been French. And so he, when, after he was born, he was nicknamed Francesco. And so we have Francis of Assisi. So, uh, he grew up, um, kind of the, the quintessential wild child, which I actually love about him. Um, a very sensitive sort, but very, um, flamboyant in the sense that he did a lot of eating, drinking, and singing. <laughs> he, he had a flair for the dramatic. He was, um, charming. He was obsessed with clothing. He was really taken with all the courtly stories and songs of the troubadours and really had this thing about chivalry and knighthood. And at the same time, he was being flamboyant. Some, there is some evidence, some of which has been suppressed. So all is when you're working with these mystics, you not only do you have to know the, their historical context, but also the way in which what, how we know about them has been influenced by the agendas of those who've written about him. But there's some evidence no. that um, there was among this group of youth that was roaming the streets of Assisi a fair amount of questionable behavior games that were of the sort that Francis himself never spoke about his early life. The only thing he would say is when I was in sin and uh, he, but I do think he carried trauma forward. So I'm going to say a little bit more about that. So in um 1202, the, there was this war, this battle between Perugia, the, the neighboring city about 16 miles away, and Assisi. They went to war, and there was a battle at the a bridge that um, separated the two um, communities, uh, two communes. And it was apparently a, an utter massacre, and he took part in that. So uh, I like to remember that this, these early stories of Francis when we understand why he was so dedicated to nonviolence. So he had this chivalrous idea, went to battle, um, participated in it, was captured, was kept in prison for a year. When he returned, he went through episodes of self-loathing and disgust. He was restless, and what he would do is escape into nature Um and because he was also a very sensitive person growing up, he was not only extravagant, he was generous. He would set the table with extra loaves of bread to make sure that there was leftover so he could give them to the poor. And there are stories of giving alms to poor people who came in to the shop. So more and more that sensitivity of his underlying who he was came out. 
He tried going to bat war again, thinking that was what he was supposed to do. And that lasted for about a day. There's a lot of stories all around that. He ended up coming back to Assisi and and just, again, that restlessness, ill, um, and having these visions. So here's the story I really want to tell because this is key. His conversion was this gradual, ongoing thing that lasted his whole life. But it began with those moments as a child where that that recognition of poor people, the poor and oppressed really came out. But he was also deathly afraid of lepers. And so here, the story is that he was riding along on his father's horse one day, and he rode past a leper at the side of the road, those who had been excluded They weren't even allowed marriage. They weren't allowed the sacraments. They weren't allowed church access. Uh, There was uh, just something really hard for him to look at. He was afraid of it with his lifestyle. But he stopped and he turned around and he went back. And that movement of turning is that movement of repentance, that, that, that underlying truth of what it is to change the direction of your life and he goes back and he embraces the leper he kisses him and and then as time goes on he goes and works in the leper colonies it wasn't like a one-time event the, the hospitals that they had but this is how he put it we do have some things that are actually written by him that are the most authentic and this is what he said When I was in sin, it seemed too bitter for me to see lepers. But then the Lord led me among them, and I showed mercy to them. And when I left them, what had seemed bitter to me had turned into sweetness. So that turning from bitter to sweet... What had been sweet to him before, you could say, had become bitter... What had seemed bitter became sweet. And that was that, entra- that transformative encounter. And he, he saw in that encounter his own fears. He saw the truth of this man who was um, excluded, marginalized, oppressed, And he saw the face of Christ. And so for him, his conversion did not begin with having this idea about Christ and then going and saying, oh, I'm going to be converted and do this good work. No, he saw the leper. It was like a mirror being held up to him. And in seeing the leper and seeing himself, he saw the face of Christ. Mm. And that was the beginning of the his true conversion. He goes on then. Um, later, a few, a few uh, months or year so later, he's working at San Damiano. He's looking at this amazing, that Franciscan cross, and he hears as he gazes at the cross and the rubbles and ruins of this old church, um, the voice, a voice, an inner voice in some of the, depending on who you, um, who you read. Some say it was actually the crucifix itself, but I think that's hagiography. But um, 
he hears this voice saying, don't you see that my house is falling into ruin? Go and repair that house out of love for me. And so he starts spending his father's money and um, incites the wrath of his father. There, it's a it's a much longer story. But he had the sense that Christ had truly spoken to him and invited him to manual labor and to give up this affluent life that he had. And he ran away and hid, knowing that his father, because he, he sold his so, his horse and he sold a bunch of his father's cloth and 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 he had all, had this money and um and and he knew his father who was abusive in our way of thinking about it was going to go ballistic and so he hid for about a month praying in the cave and then finally decided to face the music and and uh, i think everybody knows that story of how his father his father's um abusive uh feelings he didn't mind when he was spending money making up with the noblemen and getting in with the right people but when he started giving it selling his things in order to give away to the poor that was sort of the the drawing line and and uh so eventually Francis goes before the bishop of Assisi with his father he's dragged there by his father after being imprisoned and again by his his father and he strips himself naked and gives everything back to his father and walks out and begins his um life as a um free man full of joy because he is no longer burdened by possessions. What a fascinating story. Seriously. What a fascinating story. Well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I've heard, you know, like there's been a, some other um, major religious figures who start off really wealthy and who give up that wealth in order to do that. But I mean, and I knew, I knew that about Francis, but I hadn't heard all the details that you had just told. So I'm, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying, trying to go, uh, there's, there's a lot of depth to all of these stories, but he renounces family, wealth, security, power. He renounces the society's norms. He renounces the expectations that have been placed on him. He embraces poverty, which then becomes an important part of his message. And becomes fully himself because he's liberated. He discovers joy. And so all of the things that we think of, if we don't have what it takes, if we're not doing what people expect of us, that's what keeps us from joy. It's that liberation from all of those things where he found joy. And then he began to construct a whole new family for himself. So um, there are kind of four P's, I like to say that kind of need a little bit of explanation when it comes to thinking about the Franciscan story. One of them is penance. He became very uh, focused on penance. And so he is associated partly through the hagiography with this um, extreme asceticism. But it is really that turning around that he was really preaching. When he talks about penance, he's really not talking as much about um, the extremes of the choices that he made for himself so much as he is saying we have to turn around and go a different direction. You, and he invites us into a journey of conversion. 
invites us into a journey of transformation that changes the heart. And not everyone is going to follow the charism that he followed. But what he is really wanting people to do to become people for whom peace and joy matter more than violence and possession and greed and lust, um, we have to enter that kind of turning around. And I've been thinking a lot about that these days as we talk about the situations that are going on in our world and the call by some of modern mystics such as Joanna Macy talking about the fact that even as we're on the brink of major changes, we need a transformation in this society called the great turning. And I think Francis's moment of turning to look at what he's afraid of looking at, because that's the thing we, we're, we're all caught by all the things we were unwilling to see, but he's willing to see what, is he's most afraid of and um, allow it to show him the face of Christ. So it's those moments, our own moments of turning, of penance, of repentance. I mean, that's an old word I never used to, you know, I kind of got to the point, you know, where I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about that because people think this is what, but it's taking on this new life of turning from lives that are, not happy and um, turning towards an openness of heart to the beauty of the world. Yeah. That's beautiful. That is just gorgeous. Thank you for saying that. So then the other piece that's really needed within us. So that's, so penance is the one. And I just wanted to say a little bit about that. I want to, I'll come back to poverty a little bit. I think I want to start with, but I do want to make this caveat really clear, and I'll probably say this a couple of times because I know when I talk about it, people tend to think of poverty in terms of structural poverty. The poverty that Francis chose was voluntary. It was not a glorification of poor and marginalized people. It was a choice to live in solidarity with those who have less. And it is a kind of poverty that has both an outer dimension, which is simplicity. Like, so if the word poverty gets to be too much as we go through this, just substitute the word simplicity, a, a simpler lifestyle. So there's this outer manifestation of simplicity, but there's also this inner poverty that he's seeking, which is true humility. And and then he associates in a lot of the stories, humility is again associated with true joy. And if we have time, I'll tell you one of those stories. I don't know if I'll have time, but um, yeah. So I do want to say a little bit about because weaving kinship and knowing the kinship that we have the family relatedness, the connectedness, the flow of love between us is so essential for us in our day and age. I love and one of the things that initially drew me to Francis was just this assurance that we can create family. And that's part of what this journey is about as well. So he walked out of Assisi. And first of all, he he needed a new father because his father had renounced him and rejected him. So the first father he claims is God, as 
father. This is remember we're in we're in um thirteenth early thirteenth century Italy. So it's, the first thing he says is, "Listen to me. Until now, I've been called the son of Pietro um, di Bernardone. Sorry for my non-Italian accent. Um, and I returned him the money that he wanted. I returned to him all the clothing that was his. And I only want to say, from now, our Father who's in heaven, and not my Father is Pietro. And then he chose for himself." As a, as a father, a very poor and despised man and asked him to go with him. And in return for alms that every time he, his father would come by when they were in Assisi to bless him by making the sign of a cross over his head. So he chose in the poor, uh, in a beggar, the very opposite of what his father stood for, a father. And then he began assembling the friars minor, the, the other young men, who saw him and were attracted and who were willing to give up their possessions to go follow this lifestyle because there was just this yearning for something different in these violent times. And they went into the church together, the, his first several followers with him, and they opened, they, you know, they proof texted, they kind of opened the Bible and they found um, these three passages, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In Matthew 19.20. Then they proved to take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't even take an extra tunic. That's in Luke 9, uh, 9 uh, verse 3. And then the third one they found was, If any want to become my followers, Jesus is saying this, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And those became the foundation of of his fraternity. And and what he said was, according to one of his early biographers, this is what I want. This is what I've been seeking. This is what I long to do with all my heart. So he creates this fraternity of brothers wherein there's no class distinctions. Um, They share, um, you know, they share duties. They walk the road together. And they are, he also recognizes, being called to be mothers to each other. So he's lost his father, he's lost his mother, he's lost, but his, he's lost his siblings, but now he is, um, in a fraternity with those who will mother him, who will be gently nurturing of him. And, um, they go about their work in great joy. He, uh, there's actually stories about, there's paintings where, uh, he, he marries Lady Poverty. So he's actually late, Poverty becomes his spouse. And then, uh, you know, later on, he, uh, when he's about 30, uh, Claire was about 18, um, there was this young noblewoman who was taken with his vision and she also, um, asked to join and that's a whole nother story but it's actually central and i hate to leave it out um for time because she became uh she was a force uh she was not um she believed in this vision of not possessing things so strongly she's the one who actually saved franciscan intuitions after Francis died from being in, being further um, lost to the institution. 
So I, yeah, I really hate to leave her out, but he, so they were mothers of each other. They loved each other deeply, served each other, took care of each other as a mother for an only and beloved child. And they also saw themselves as um, carrying that possibility of being mothers of Christ. Um, that we, they became mothers of Christ when they carried Jesus in their hearts and their bodies through love. And that they felt very strongly that they gave birth to Christ through their holy works. And that is actually, that part is actually from something that, that he himself wrote. So, yeah. And then finally, you know, uh, beyond Claire, and I, you know, I can say more if you'd like, um, he invites all creatures to become part of his family. So I'll stop there for a moment, but it, that I really want to focus, and I want to say a little bit more about his love of nature and creatures. Yes, because I think that's, I mean, lots of people know lots of things about Francis, but I think his love of nature is probably what people know most, you know, considering yeah. his statues are always surrounded by animals, yeah. like, like some sort of Disney princess. Yeah. <laughs> He has like birds on his shoulders and squirrels. And so I, I think that that's an important part for people to understand. It's not like, well, I don't even know what it's like. I don't even know exactly what it's like. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about um, exactly how he showed his love of nature. I mean, did he go out in the forest and stand and lots of animals came and sat on him? Well, as far as we know, yeah, as far as we know. So, um so Francis, uh, there are all all sorts of stories about Francis and his reverence for nature. So he was able to extend his awareness of this deep, what we would call kinship, this deep fraternity in his his words. To the natural world, to animate as well as inanimate things. So there is, his biographers say that he would um, be careful where he washed his hands so that he didn't trample the water. He would be careful of the rocks on the road. He would pick up worms and move them so that he he didn't um, step on them. He would set out honey and wine for bees in the winter. One of the stories I love as I think about how important native uh, landscapes are in this day and age is he had this intuition that he and required the brothers when they they made their garden to keep part of it set aside for wild to stay wild. So he was doing native landscaping, you know, before that was even a thing. He just had this love of nature and and this awareness that. Um, these creatures needed needed their space, and so that even though they would plant gardens for their food as part of their simple lifestyle that was based on manual labor, they would always keep apart native, and they would also always put um, flowers so that there was beauty there as well as the utilitarian of it. So I, I love uh, the, the stories of of Francis, but that, you know, your statue in the garden, you know, that we all have, you just mentioned it, Carla, you know, where he's sitting there. I love this, this, you know, he's got his hand on his heart and he's got his palm up and open and there's a little bird nestling in it. 
So I'm, I'm going to read you the story from um, the um, second Solano, which is one of his hagiographers. Heading to the hermitage of Grezio, Blessed Francis was crossing the lake in a small boat, and a fisherman offered him a little water bird so that he might rejoice in the Lord over it. And the Blessed Father received it gladly with open hands, gently invited it to fly and to be free. But the bird did not want to leave. Instead, it settled down in his hands as in a nest. And the saint, his eyes lifted up, remained in prayer. Returning to himself as if after a long stay in another place, he sweetly told the little bird to return to its original freedom. And so the bird, having received permission with a blessing, flew away, expressing its joy in the movement of its body. When Francis was on Mount Alverna, uh, late in his life, it is said that birds would just fly around his hut and he made friends with a falcon who would wake him up in the morning if he was feeling well. But at this, by the time Francis is at the end of his life, he's very ill. And the last years of his life, he was in a lot of pain from um, ver- from his travels and his wounds. And the falcon would not wake him up on mornings when it thought he needed a little extra sleep. So uh, these beautiful stories. And then the the quintessential famous story, which is attested to in, a, in quite a few of even the earlier writings, is the story of Francis preaching to the birds. And so here's the story. And here's my, the other two Ps I mentioned. So um, I had mentioned that the Franciscan... Charism is based on this penance, this repentance and turning, and on this lifestyle that recognizes that having possessions means that you have to defend them, and therefore you cannot make peace because you're just always defending your possessions. So this lifestyle that of liberation through poverty, but that is supported with what with prayer and preaching. So there's this contemplative dimension of prayer and I like to ask myself as well as people when I talk about Francis to imagine the depth of silence and presence and being in the moment that you could open your hands and cup them there like a nest for a bird that a bird would just want to be in your hands and not fly away what kind of stillness had he cultivated So Francis, unlike many of the other mystics, didn't write a lot about his personal experiences. As a matter of fact, he was pretty explicit that you shouldn't be talking about that. But that he had them is very clear. So there's this piece about prayer. And then there's this piece about proclaiming peace. Um, Preaching. But preaching for him was about the deeds and not about the words. Even though he used words and he used a lot of song, being in the world, preaching through just the way he was acting like a fool and going from town to town and being a peacemaker because he had no vested interest in whatever was causing the violence and the dissension. 
Um, so he got to a point where he started questioning whether or not he should preach to the world or whether he should just retire and do contemplative prayer full time. And so he asked two of his companions, Father Sylvester and Claire, to discern this for him. And and Sylvester goes off and he comes back and says, no, you need to keep preaching. That's what you're called to do. And Claire comes back through an intermediary and says, yeah, you're supposed to keep doing this. You're supposed to be in the world, letting the world see this. And so he goes out and the first thing he does is he starts preaching to the birds. And so there's this beautiful image. I One of my favorite, you know, uh, uh, images of. Francis is is having all of these birds surrounding him and him preaching it. And and the sources are pretty um, explicit about exactly where it took place. So and I had not noticed this until recently, recently um, that what he says to the birds is this. My little bird sisters, you should praise your creator because God has given you the gift of flight and freedom, colorful clothing, food and water, and you never need to sow. You have such beautiful voices. He gives you rivers and springs to drink from. The mountains and the crags are your refuge. The trees are theirs to make nests. God gives you all you need. So your creator loves you. Therefore, always be grateful. And what I hadn't noticed is, is this is a celebration of the kind of abundance that allows one not to need extra stuff. It's this this recognition that's coming through, especially um, in the ecological work today, where we're turning to indigenous sources of wisdom and knowledge that begin with the recognition that we have enough. We can have lifestyles of simplicity if we recognize that. Everything is given to us. There's all this abundance around us, and I have enough. I don't need more. It's anti-consumer. It's anti-materialist. It's anti-capitalist. It's anti-countercultural. And it is facilitated by, it begins in and ends with gratitude. And and we are receiving this message today from um, indigenous wisdom elders And we can look to this tradition of someone who lived simply on the land. And that's what shows up is just he's saying to these birds, "Uh, you have everything. And um, it's just this beautiful, beautiful celebration of why we don't need to consume. So the so the then the the um, the way the sermon is recorded, of course, we don't know what really happened. The way the sermon is recorded embodies the very essence of what it is to choose a a lifestyle that's more simple that is um, going without so that others who don't have as much have more and he did all of this um, in in concert with the preachers and and then he would sing with the birds there's a later story where um it was actually several centuries later is much less likely to be true. But there's this lovely story of he and Brother Leo being out and there's a nightingale singing in the bushes. So he decides, well, let's sing with him and let's sing antiphonally. So he and the nightingale get into this back and forth duet and they just sing until Francis finally has to give up and the nightingale wins and flies away because 
so this beauty of song. I just love the way you talk about him. I just love hearing these stories about him. I, I think that, um, this whole like non-possession thing, uh, it makes me really uncomfortable actually when I hear you talk about it because I, I just look at my basement and I have lots of possession that I don't want to give up, you know, yeah. and I, it, it, it makes me super uncomfortable. However, I could give up something. I could give up more. I could yeah. be less attached to these things that I have around me. But when I hear you say that, I'm like, oh, he could do it, but I could never, ever, ever do that. Well, and so again, I, and thank you for saying that because that's a really important thing to say is that I don't think we're called to the level of extremity that he was. He didn't even demand, he, he was pretty demanding, but he demanded more of himself. And actually, um, tried to get the brothers and Claire in particular, who probably had a, she was probably anorexic. She ate so little. He actually said, you gotta eat. You gotta eat more. You know, he tried to moderate some of the asceticism and that was part of their day and age. So that is a caution whenever we're working with these mystics is we're running into cultural values that, that no longer seem appropriate. But this kind of simplicity that he's calling us to might allow me to say, do I really need to order the, this book? <laughs> um, and at the end of his very end of his life, one of the last things he's reported to have said is, I've done what I was called to do, but you need to do what you were called to do. And so that's there is a danger. I, I, this is not an invitation into the extreme asceticism. It's a, a, an invitation into looking more deeply at our own broken places that, that are trying to, um, and our participation in our culture that we're, in which we're enmeshed. And so there's this constant, actually, it kind of leads me into the, you know, one, one story I wanted to offer too, uh, about the way in which he makes choices, not by putting the other at a distance and saying they're an enemy, but by befriending the enemy, including our own, uh, our own inner needs. He, he was harsh with himself, I will say to a fault and um he did some pretty wacky things um but he had a gentleness with everyone else so there's a story too like so one of the brothers trying to do this thing you know of eating less woke up in the middle of the night just crying out because he was so hungry and so miserable and francis heard him and woke everybody up and set a table and had made sure, and they all sat around and had a feast. And he was very clear about us following, following our own, moderating, uh, according to our own needs and just being, it, it's about the seeing and, um, making choices it's not about trying to rigidly follow something that doesn't make sense for us or for you but i have that same i have that same reaction kind of going hmm, you know what where are the places 
um, that I, I can simplify my outer life, but it needs to be in response to that inner place of calling and, and recognition of who we are and our place in history and what our times call for. And it's his conversion took his whole life and beyond. And I just let his voice be gentle in my head, which whenever I've sort of encountered him that way, um, there's nothing there but gentleness and compassion. You know, that he lived in a day and time when asceticism was a, another one of those um, chains. So finding the middle path. I really appreciate you said that um, because I, I do think that there are moments when we, when I like to hear about St. Francis and things like that, when I'm like, it's good for me to take a look at myself and good for me to take a look around me. And those are the moments when I'm like, I can, I can do a little bit better with this here. Yeah. <laughs> so those are moments that call me back to a place where God is probably calling me as well. Since, since I had that little, that little pinprick, you know, like, yeah. and he's like, Oh, Oh, I feel that hard. Those yeah. are the moments that we should listen to. I think so. Well, and, and but uh, to, to listen to them, but to listen to them, not as some sort of a uh, harsh, uh, there's two voices. There's the voice of Pietro that's abusive and harsh in us. Um, that creates um, some of the self-negative things that I think are evident in some of Fran- the Franciscan stories. There's this one story where he's walking along with with Brother Leo, and, and they don't have a liturgy yet, so he's going, Brother Leo, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to say, oh, Francis is, you know, um, really has failed and um, is full of sin. And Leo's like, okay, I'll do that. And so they, he'd go, okay, Francis has really failed and I'm full of sin. And Leo would go, God, God is, God wants Francis to know he's blessed and beloved. And Francis, no, 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 you're supposed to say I'm bad and I'm full of sin. And Leo's like, okay, I'm going to try. And they go on and like this on and on and on. And in the end, God refuses the negative language that is in Francis around this idea of sin and says no. And Leo, who tries to do what his friend wants him to do, can't because the voice of God within him is saying the words I mean to speak are these words of gentleness and compassion. Basically, God's saying, um, you're not the son of Pietro. You're not, you're not the son of the harsh voice. You are the son of um one who loves you like a mother and brother and father and stuff. You know, I preach about that God all the time, but I rarely let that God talk to me. So I, I really appreciate that you said well, that. I It's amazing. And if you go into some of the stories that were written about him, there's another story where he gets after brother Rufino because he doesn't immediately obey him to go um preach. Because Rufino is actually, I think it's Brother Rufino, it's actually a contemplative. And, uh, so he gets on him and, 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 and says, because you didn't obey me, I want you to strip, which meant stripping to their underwear. The hagiographers are quick to let us know. Um, and go to Assisi and preach in your underwear. So Rufino does that. And then, it's this story is I, I this is how I hear this story. 
um, he, he goes, what did I just do? I'm the son, I'm the son of Pietro Bernardone, which you could interpret to say, you know, I know what it's like to have come from a, you know, background where this would be embarrassing. But I think what he's really saying is, I'm acting like my father did, and I don't want to do that. And so he recognizes his harshness. So he takes his clothes off. He does, he did a lot of that. Hands them to brother Leo. Leo takes and, and goes into Assisi and finds Rufino, um, preaching in the cathedral. Everybody's laughing at him and he joins him and they start speaking about this lifestyle of turning around and, and, um, all the, uh, all the laughter and all of the titters, you know, get quieter and quieter and people listen and hear a message. So, so there's that recognition that we carry we do carry those harsh voices in us. And yet over and over when he's, when he is dealing with someone else, his gentleness and compassion comes through. And that's the voice I would think, even as we ask those questions about how can I simplify my lifestyle? I think Francis would also be saying, yes, you're invited to make this turning to open your heart. But you're not to do it just because you should do it. it be, it's so that inner poverty of spirit is is what we're cultivating. Yeah. Oh wow. See, listeners, I told you at the very beginning when Lori speaks, you should really listen because there's lots and lots and lots of good nuggets in there. So Lori, we have only about ten minutes left. I know you could talk about Francis a lot longer, but we only have yeah. about ten minutes left. What would you tell us? about Francis if you only had 10 minutes to talk about and wrap it up. So to wrap it up, well, so uh, 10 minutes. Well, I have a little time in her. I'm going to try to do it this way. Um, I do want to very briefly talk about his journey to the Sultan. So, uh, and then I want to talk about the canical of the creatures. I think that's the way I would really like to end. As Francis is living his life during the time of the Crusades. Now, the Fifth Crusade is going on in Damietta, Egypt, and he goes to Egypt. And um, there's actually quite a long long story about how he recognized what the um, Crusaders were doing to be a violence that they were going to suffer from. There's also um, stories among the um, leaders of the expedition complaining about the fact that he was among the soldiers and some of them decided they'd rather be a follower of Francis's way than being in this violent place. So here's this person who as a young man had been had been traumatized. And I, I think probably in our day and age, we'd say had PTSD going in to this war zone where there was massacre. And he decided that he was going to go see the Sultan. Now the, the later biographers who want to spiritualize everything say he wanted to go convert him, but he crossed the demilitarized zone as this poor man. And in, because he refused to accept gifts, refused to accept possessions, came so humbly, spent about two weeks with the Sultan and with his um, spirit, Sufi spiritual advisors, and apparently they had uh, these conversations. There's some suggestion they were cosmological in nature about the nature of God, of spirit, 
And what's really beautiful about it is, is even though some of the biographers would like to make you think that he did, he converted the Sultan, they basically were in this exchange of dialogue. And to this day, the Basilica in Assisi is one, one place in Christendom where interreligious dialogue can take, take place. He made suggestions to the Sultan that the Sultan actually tried to implement to try to bring the war to a conclusion. And it was the cardinal prelate who refused to let the, the crusaders accept those terms of passage to Jerusalem. But he came home himself influenced by his conversation with the person who believed differently than he did. So this thing about otherness translated to his peacemaking across religious and, dare I say, political boundaries. And what he says, he wrote a rule when he came back, which was not accepted. He had to rewrite it. But the rule he wanted um, said that when you go among those Saracens, because that was that was what it was in his day and age, this is what you need to do. You basically need to enter into dialogue, but not into argument and disputation. And only if an, you can stay true to your sense of who you are, I, as a Christian, and only if and as something that moves in you that there's a way to share um, share across those religious boundaries and do it then, which seems so obvious to us. But if you think about that in that day and age, and then he came home, he wrote uh, these beautiful songs in the, towards the end of his life. And one of them, what is clear, pretty clear to those who really look deeply at this incident, that he himself came home and allowed himself to be changed by this interchange with somebody of a different faith than his. He um, wrote this beautiful um, set of praises, you know, um, to the Lord. You are love. You are peace. You are humility. You are. And it's just, it just goes on and on and on kind of in the way that the Muslims recognize the many names of God. And he believed uh, he came. The only thing he may have come back with that he accepted was an ox horn to call people to prayer. And he then incorporated a, a call to prayer with a bell into their daily rhythms of life. So, so I just wanted to, to mention that particular piece. There's a beautiful icon that you can look up online by, uh, a Franciscan, his name is Robert Lentz, I think, and it has Francis and the Sultan with this holy fire of love, shrouded in this holy fire of love as they spoke um, peace together. So, but he came back because he found, because the order was being taken over, it was being institutionalized, it was being made to look actually more um, ascetic and less with a charism of poverty. And he came back and tried and failed and had to give up and start all over again. And by this time he had trachoma. He had, he, he was hurting. He went to the, to the mountain. The story about the stigmata, I think, is fascinating. We don't have time to go into that, but I would just say, I think part of that story is not only about did he or didn't he actually bear the wounds of Christ after this vision that came with a, more interactions with birds, um, but how he carried the wounds of his life and his flesh and his soul, and yet had this um, incredible experience of union with God. 
He also came back, you may not know this, just make sure everybody knows that um, he did the first crush ever. So when you celebrate your crush at Christmas, that was Francis. But he came back tired and weary towards the end of his life to San Damiano, where Claire and the poor sisters lived. And he was by this time basically um, blind. His eyes, they tried to cauterize his eyes with a red hot iron. And um, he writes this incredible hymn that we all know as the Canticle of Creatures, a song. So I wanted to end there because um, what I wanted to say about it is the way in which it becomes this powerful expression that I think all of us need of his understanding of how interconnected all of life and all the all the elements and all the creatures are connected through the brilliance of the light of the of the one who's the trinity so he writes this cosmological song at the end and it starts out saying most high all-powerful good lord to you are the praises the glory the honor and every blessing to you most high all this belongs but no one is worthy to pronounce your name, which is, again, a piece from his sojourn in Egypt, as well as that mystical intuition that the, that God, that what we call God is a mystery that can't really be named. And then he goes on and he tries to name it. And, the, and he names it. First of all, he's blind. Seeing the light hurts his eyes. And he starts out saying, praise be to you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially brother, son. So the, so the first two verse, first two strophes are about God. And then he goes into these, this piece about brother, son, sister, moon, and the stars. So one light, three sources of light. So there's it. So he's embodying both his sense of the light that is the holy mystery. The brotherhood and sisterhood of sun and moon and stars, but somehow also representing the Trinity in unity. And then the next four verses are the ancient elements of earth in the ancient order, which is praise be you, brother wind. And then he gives four descriptors of brother wind. Praise be you, sister water. He gives four descriptors of sister water. Praise be you, brother fire, and then four descriptors of fire. And praise be you, my Lord, sister, mother earth. And four descriptors. At least I'm told in Italian, the English, it's a little harder to find the four. But he actually structured this to say, to say here's the one and the three. And then here's the four elements of which all of creation is created. Seeing them as can brother and sister, this cosmological hymn. And, and then... That was the end of the song as it was originally written. And he, they set it to music. They began to sing it. But where is the human in this song? So I, I would encourage anybody to go look this up and actually spend some time with all of this and add your own verses to it uh, of praise. So he gets he's sick. He gets moved to the bishop's palace in the CC where he can get better care. 
And the bishop and the secular governor of Assisi are in this huge battle. So one's excommunicating the Podesta, and the Podesta's not letting anybody do anything with the church. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. And you know what sick, dying Francis does? He brings the brothers together and gets them to sing this canticle. And as he sings the canticle, um, he adds verse. And he adds the verse about um, pardon. So then um, he prays to you, my Lord, through those who give pardon for your love, who bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace for you. But he added those verses to make peace between the bishop and the Podesta, the head of the commune. And so his peacemaking becomes the place where the human is in this canticle, the pe- those who need peace. And then a year or so later, when he's really dying, he adds the final verses to it. And the final verses are, Praise be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death, from whom no living man can escape. And it becomes a recognition that death is part of life and part of the cosmological order, and that um, those who have loved him will be all right because he knows he's going to be all right. And so it is this recognition, even though it's not done in the standard mystical tropes, he's not saying, oh, God's transcendent and imminent and doing all the theological thing. He, No, he's he's feeling it. He's living it. He's singing it. He's weaving it all together. And it's one great family of being of which humans are the ones who sing the song. So I wanted to make sure we ended with that because that's the piece that um, I, I just think that's what Francis is. That's his biggest, most profound legacy. And he's become the patron saint of all things ecological, interreligious dialogue. He invites us to personal conversion and transformation. And um, yeah, invites us to that transformation of a lived engagement with Christ because he that's who he loved. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Lori, I this has just been so fascinating for me. I've learned so much from you about and I and I could tell how much you love him oh, <laughs> the way you spoke about him. And how much like just how rich his life was and continues to be for people who study him. So thank you so much for your knowledge and thank you so much for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it a lot. You are very welcome. And we only scratched the surface, but he is, I would invite everybody to find, if it's not Francis, find a wisdom person um, or persons that can help be a companion on your own spiritual journey. That's what, that's why, that's why it's, why we, why we teach. It's, it's, it's not about the learning. It's about how how then do I find that change of heart that makes me open to all the wounds of the world and do it with singing. That's That's what we need in this day and age. Absolutely. I, I do not disagree. Well, thank you again, Lori. You're so welcome.
Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.